Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who attends to our needs. That sometimes when we don't feel like others notice us, pay attention to us, understand where we're coming from, what's going on in our hearts, we thank you, O oh God, that you see and that you know. And I thank you, O oh God, that you have taken notice of everything that was written down on these cards. God, you hear the prayers, you hear the longings of our heart. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you might come, that you might come now to our lives, that you might come again into this world and make all things new. And we pray, oh God, that you would come in this place as we open up your word and that you would speak and make us attentive to your voice. And we ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. So one of the things that uh, we've said again and again and again is that Advent is all about the arrival and the coming of Jesus. That's what the word Advent means. And in between now and then when Christ returns, when he comes, the church is called to this place of waiting. And as we wait, we are called to patience. And so throughout Advent, we're looking uh, together at a variety of different passages of scriptures that enable us to be a people that wait with faith and with hope and with patience. And so we've been engaged in this series entitled, How Long, O Lord? And this morning we want to look together at Romans chapter 8. And the call in this text, the invitation in this text is to trust in God's promise as we wait. This week, I was in my office, and I looked out my window, and I saw Ryan Wiley, our worship director, and he was across the street, and he was hanging Christmas lights on our facility. And so I don't know how many of you noticed this when you walked by, maybe last night you were driving by, but uh, you can thank Ryan Wiley for hanging uh, Christmas lights. And as I watched Ryan climb up a really high ladder, kind of precariously hanging some lights there, I was reminded of a very... Uh, visceral kind of uh, dark memory that I have of hanging Christmas lights from years ago. It was uh, my wife and I's first uh, Christmas that we were spending together. We were actually, we're not yet married. We were still dating. And so this is going to be the first Christmas that I was spending with her family. And uh, it was right after Thanksgiving, I was over there when her dad asked me if I would help him hang Christmas lights on their house. Now, I looked at their house. It's a big two-story house with a pitched roof. And he said, uh, I really need your help this year. I want to I get Christmas lights uh, hung around the edge of uh, our second-story roof. And I said, well, that's fantastic. How do you plan on doing that? He said, well, that's where you come in. And he pointed to the second-story roof. I am not lying. And he said, uh, what I'm going to do is he says, I'm going to hand you the lights. And he says, I want you to crawl down head first with a staple gun and staple gun these lights along the edge of the roof. And he said, but don't worry. I'm going to tie a rope around your waist and I'll hold on to the rope. I'm dating his daughter. I'm going to do this the first date my daughters get and the first boy they bring home for Christmas. 
And so there I was on the second story of my uh, future wife's roof, uh, head first crawling down this pitched roof with lights and a staple gun and a rope tied around my waist and my future father-in-law holding onto the rope on the other side. And so we got to the edge and I'm there and uh, just as I was kind of reaching over the edge, I actually rolled over and I fell off and then I grabbed onto the rope and then he fell after me and landed on his shoulder and broke his shoulder. I'm just kidding, that didn't happen, but I thought it would be awesome if it did. But what did happen was I did have a rope tied around my, my, my body as I was hanging these Christmas lights. And I was thinking in that moment two thoughts. One was, how long, oh Lord? When is this going to end? And the other thought I had was, I better trust this man. And these are the two thoughts we often carry with us into Advent. How long, oh Lord? And I better trust this God. I better trust his promise. Well, this morning, what we're going to see in Romans 8 is that our deepest question, how long, O oh Lord, the, the doubts that, were, that surface in our hearts during Advent, during these seasons of waiting, these deepest questions, concerns, doubts, they're met by the promise of God of tremendous and robust hope. And we're going to look together at the hope that is, prevent, that is presented to us in this uh, passage. This passage, by the way, is written to a group of Christians who almost certainly were undergoing some kind of persecution. They were suffering. And they no doubt were asking, how long, O Lord? Paul had actually taught these Christians earlier in Romans 8 that great phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on in the passage to say, you are the children of God. And no doubt they found themselves asking, if we are God's children, and if God loves us, and if there's no condemnation, then how am I supposed to interpret the suffering I'm going through? And so he meets that question with a statement of a future promise, of our future hope. And he gives us three angles of this future hope that I want us to look at this morning. Number one, we're gonna see that, that the hope that we wait for, number one, is the resurrection of our body. Second, we're gonna see that the hope we wait for is the glorification of God's children. And then finally, we're gonna see that the hope we wait for is the liberation of creation. So the resurrection of the body, the glorification of God's children, and the liberation of creation. Anyone in the house this morning need a little hope? All right, it's here, let's go. Notice first, the first aspect of this hope that we wait eagerly for and we groan inwardly for is the resurrection of the body. Look at what he says in verse 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He restates this same idea, this same hope of the resurrection of the body a little bit later in verse 23. He says this, and not only creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly and we wait eagerly. It's interesting, he says, we groan inwardly and we wait eagerly. 
And these are two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, sometimes we are waiting eagerly. Maybe you're in church and you're singing songs about that great day of final glory and your heart is filled with joy and you find yourself waiting eagerly. But then other times in the midst of the suffering, all you can do is groan inwardly. Sometimes when I'm going to bed at night next to my wife, sometimes if we're in the midst of a very difficult time, we just go, oh, you can't even bring it to speech. It just aches. And in response to the inward groan, in response to the eager waiting, he asserts the resurrection of the body. Notice what he says. He says, and we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, for the redemption of the body, for the redemption of the body. Now, the resurrection of the body in the ancient world was a strange, strange hope for the pagans. Because if they hoped in the afterlife, they almost certainly held to some sort of Platonic vision of the afterlife, which they, the Platonists basically held not to the resurrection of the body, but what they had confidence in was the immortality of the soul. They viewed this body as a prison house that kept our soul captive. But one day, this old prison house of the body would break open and the soul would be finally set free. But in the face of that, that idea of the immortality of the soul, the Christians asserted the resurrection of the body. And it's different. A lot of Christians sometimes in, in our own popular versions of Christianity believe that ultimately what's going to happen is our, our bodies are going to die, but then our soul is going to go off and to inhabit some disembodied existence in a spiritual nether netherland. But that is not the hope of Christianity. At the very center of Christianity is the hope of bodily resurrection. But this is a strange hope, granted. And it raises all kinds of questions for many, many of us. Many of us ask questions. For example, uh, N.T. Wright uh, raised this question in his great book, Surprised by Hope on the Resurrection. He said, if a cannibal eats a Christian but later converts, which bits belong to who in the resurrection? It's a good question. And we wonder about, you know, well, what about cremation? Is that okay? And what about the deterioration of the body? What do we even mean by the resurrection of the body? I mean, is this some sort of like night of the living dead, zombies? And of course, Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, oh, he says, it's not like that. He says, what is sown is mortal, but what is raised is immortal. There's continuity between our present bodily existence now and our future raised bodily existence, but there's also discontinuity. Now, how all that shakes out, I don't know. But I do know this, that the body of Jesus that was put in the tomb is the same body that was raised physically and walked out of the tomb. And Jesus is the first fruits. He is the first of what ultimately is to come. And just as God raised Jesus bodily from the dead, so too one day he will raise up in a new transformed physical bodily existence in bodies that don't age, that don't get any more pain, that are not subject to cancer, that are not subject to dementia or anything like that. You are gonna be healed and raised in a glorified transformed body and that is good news, amen? amen? Johnny Erickson Tata put it like this. You know, Johnny Erickson Tata, many of you will know, 
I became a, parapl- or a quadriplegic at a very young age when she uh, dove into a very shallow waters. She spent her life in a wheelchair, but with a very robust faith in future resurrection. And she said this, I still can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives to someone spinal cord injured like myself? Or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is a manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. And this is incredibly good news. Do you remember that old movie from the 80s, or was it the early 90s, Ghost? With Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze. And the whole kind of dilemma in that movie You say, well, don't spoil it for me. It was back in the 80s. It's your fault if you didn't see it. (laughs) But kind of the dilemma in the movie is that they can't actually embrace each other, one who is on this side of the grave and one who is on the other because one has a body and the other one doesn't. But the future for the Christian is an embodied existence. God created us from the very beginning to be embodied creatures. Part of what it means to be human being is to have a body. It's to have hands and arms. It's to have legs that can dance. It is to have vocal cords which can articulate song and voice. This is what it means to be human. And in the future, God is going to transform and glorify these old bodies. And our bodies will be redeemed from the curse of sin and death to become like the body, the raised body of Jesus. And so at the very center of Christian hope is the resurrection of the body. But he not only talks to us here about the resurrection of the body, secondly, he talks to us in this text about the glorification of God's children. Look at what he says back in verse 17, or let's start in verse 16. He says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And this is breathtaking. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Can you imagine being a joint heir, sharing in the same inheritance as the eternal son of the father? And because of our union with Christ, we become joint heirs with him. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified together with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. In the Greek, uh, the preposition that's translated in my ESV, to us, in some Bibles is translated in us. And that's because the phrase in Greek is a little bit ambiguous. And the preposition really means something like into us. God reveals himself to us, but then that to becomes something that comes in us and transforms us. What is he talking about here? What does it mean to be glorified? C.S. Lewis, in his great uh, essay, The Weight of Glory, explores this question. And, and he, 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 he kind of like teases it out. He says, what, what are we talking about? Like, does that mean one day you're going to be like a giant light bulb? Because sometimes when we think about glory, we think about light. 
being bright. And he says it's more than that. It's different than that. The glory of God is his weight. It's, uh, in Hebrew, it's the word kavod, and it means his heaviness. It is the weight, it is the hept of God's infinite, eternal beauty and goodness and truth. And one day you will see God in all of his glory and goodness and beauty and truth. One day we will stand before that infinite, dazzling, eternal sea of love and goodness and beauty. You will behold God. The ancients called this the beatific vision and it was what everyone longed for. They wanted to see the beauty of God. And haven't you even in this life had little glimmers of it, little tastes of it? in spaces of corporate worship where you just get a sense of his goodness and it leaves you aching and longing for a greater experience of that goodness and beauty. Well, one day you will see God. But what this text is saying is something even beyond that. We're not just going to see the beauty. We are actually going to, in some sense, enter into it. You know, when I was on the cruise, I told you about a cruise I went on, a few weeks ago, or the last couple weeks. But, um, you know, I'm on this cruise, and if you know me, you know I love the ocean. And there is something that is so magnificent about being surrounded by the sea and just kind of sitting there out and being surrounded by this ocean. And we would sometimes walk around, you know, the cruise ship had this uh, quarter mile. You could go for a walk around the ship. And just about every time I went for a walk around the ship, I would stop at the, the, the stern of the ship and I would look out and just kind of look at the vast expanse of the ocean. But almost every time, and my wife will tell you this, I would say, honey, I just want to climb over the edge and dive in. I don't want to just look at the ocean, though that is glorious. I want to get in the beauty of this great immense sea. C.S. Lewis says, this is what we are in for with God. He says, we do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be unified with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. And one day when we see the glory and the beauty of God, that glory is going to somehow pervade our own hearts and lives and transform us. In the language of 1 John, we shall become like him for we shall see him as he is. So number one, at the center of our hope is the resurrection of the body. Number two, it's the glorification of God's children. We shall share in the glory of God. But thirdly, at the very center of the hope that Paul presents here is the liberation of creation. Now, this is fascinating because it's something that almost none of us talks about or thinks about, and yet I want you to see what Paul says here in Romans 8, uh, back in verse 18. Let's start there again. He talks here about a hope of the liberation of creation. He says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing 
The creation waits, he says, with eager longing. A little bit later, he's going to say that creation is groaning. And it's actually standing on its tiptoes waiting for something. What is it that creation, according to this text, is waiting for? Now, the answer, if you've grown up in church, might be Jesus, because that's always the right answer, right? The Sunday school teacher has said, uh, what's up, brown and furry and has a long bushy tail? And uh, one of the children says, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is always Jesus. <laughs> but what is it that creation is waiting for? This is interesting. He says, for creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the children or the, for the ch- children, for the sons of God. He says, creation is not waiting for Jesus, though that is true. I'm certain that creation itself is waiting for Jesus, but here he says, it's waiting for the revelation, the revealing of the children of God, for our glorification, for our resurrection. Creation is standing on its tiptoes, it's groaning, it's waiting for that day. There's a gentleman in our church, uh, John, um, his last name's escaping me right now, who uh, manages the gardens over, or one of the, the desert gardens over at the Huntington Gardens. John Crager. Traeger, that's right. So John, John uh, came over to our house and walked through our backyard, I don't know, a few weeks ago, and was kind of giving us some advice about our plants, and he came and he just with great attention and care, he walked through and looked at, at each one of our plants, and I could almost swear that I could see as he walked by and kind of touched the plants that the plants smiled. <laughs> they just loved this man's presence. And after he left, it was almost as if I could hear my backyard saying, when is he coming again? <laughs> Here Paul is personifying creation. He's talking about the world, about earth. And he's saying that creation is waiting for the children of God to come and finally be revealed as their true selves. Now, what on earth is he talking about? Well, he goes on and he he develops this a little bit further. He says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. One commentator named John Murray says that this verse is actually Paul's little commentary on the first few chapters of Genesis Genesis 1 to 3, specifically chapter 3. And he says this, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So creation is longing, it's waiting for the revelation of the children of God, but what, why? Like, what is, it, what is this talking about? And I think to answer that question, you need to go back to the original story of creation in Genesis 1 to 3, and specifically what God says about creation and his special agents that he placed in creation, namely you and I, as his image bearers. So go with me back just on a brief journey to Genesis 1. You don't need to turn there, but just in your imagination. So God creates 
the world. And what is God's verdict after each day of creation? What does he think about what he made? He says it's what? It's good. It is good. God's creation is good. He creates the birds and the bees and the plants and the trees and the stars. And then on the final day of creation in action, when God is is on his final act of creation, at the very pinnacle of creation, he creates the human creature. And after creation of the human creature, God issues a new verdict on creation. It goes from good to very good. He looks at everything that he made and he says, it is very good. Why is creation now very good after the insertion of his image bearers? Well, again, going back into the ancient Near East is helpful. There are other stories of the creation of humanity back in the ancient Near East. And in some of these creation stories, the human creatures are actually made in order to be like little slaves to bring food to the hungry gods. And in some of these creation stories, there, are, there is a reference to human beings being an image bearer of God, but it's always a reference to the king. The king is the one who is the image bearer, and he carries God's rule and God's reign over all of the subjects. But in ancient Near Eastern, the Israelite imagination, the idea of the image of God is democratized. It's egalitarian. And all people, men and women, old and young, are created in God's image to be God's divine agents in the world, representing his rule in creation. And that's why when God creates humanity, when he creates you and I, he gives us this vocation. He says, be fruitful and multiply, go into the earth, and he says, cultivate it, rule over the the world, exercise my own wise and loving stewardship in creation. In Genesis 2, it gets another picture of this, and it talks about humanity being in the garden, you know, being formed from the dust of the earth, and, and God gives Adam and Eve a vocation there. It is to tend and to care for the garden. It is to cultivate the garden and to bring out all of the latent potential that is hidden therein. To draw it out and to do something useful with it. And he says, this was our vocation from the beginning. We, in the beginning, were called to have a relationship with God, to be sure. This was primary to human life. We were called to have a relationship with other people. Yes, that is core to humanity. But from the very beginning, you and I were given a vocation, a job to do in this world, to go out into the world and to be culture makers, to be stewards of creation, to do something useful with it, to take nature and to create culture. Andy Crouch, author, writer, Christian thinker, suggests that this move from nature to culture, from humanity being set in creation and going out and drawing out the potentials in creation, this move from nature to culture, he says we can think of as a movement from good to very good. So he says this, he says the world has grain in it. And grain is a part of the natural world. And grain is good, but but then we take the grain and we crush the grain, and we mix it with water and yeast and salt. I think that's the ingredients of bread, right? And we put it in an oven, and we take it out, and we slice a piece of that fresh, bakely bread off. 
Now, grain is good, but bread is very good. (laughs) The world has chickens in it and eggs. And we take the eggs uh, from free-range chickens, hopefully, with names who have been lovingly cared for and tended. And we break the eggs and we scramble them and we combine them with bacon and cheese and avocado. Now, eggs are good, but omelets are very good. The world has grapes in it. And you crush those grapes so that the yeast that's been growing on the outside then mixes with the sugars and the juice on the inside. And you let it sit there in the right conditions and you draw off the results. And if you're a Baptist, you get grape juice. (laughs) Now, grapes are good, but wine is very good. The world has sound in it, sound all the time, but it is only when image bearers come in who apply their skill and their attention and patience and creativity to the sound that they they take the sounds and then they arrange it and they create instruments. And sound is good, but music is very good. From the very beginning, this has been the vocation of humanity to go into God's world that's good and to draw out the latent potential and to create culture and technology and to do something useful with it that benefits and serves the human community. Do you realize this? Your work matters. It's a part of being human. It's a part of being an image bearer of God. But what is Paul saying here? I think what he's getting at, and other commentaries uh, go, go along with this line of thinking, I think what Paul is talking about in Romans 8 about creation being subject to frustration. What is frustration? It's when you're not able to, 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 to accomplish the end that you're going after. You're frustrated. And creation has all this latent potential, and yet the potential is not being realized in the fullest extent of of its possibilities, of its latent potentials. In fact, creation, the potentials are being drawn out, and instead of being used in good and productive ways, though it often is, sometimes it's used in destructive ways. And I could see the atoms groaning because they're split and they're used to kill humanity. I can see the ocean groaning because of the toxins, because of the oil spills. I can see the plants and animals groaning because they're moving towards extinction because of pollution. I can hear creation groaning because of poor ways in which humanity has moved out into the world and developed it in destructive ways. But he says one day when the children of God are revealed, Creation is going to be set free from this bondage to decay. And creation is going to have all of its potentials drawn out of it through God's image bearers who are redeemed and restored and glorified and resurrected. In other words, you will rule and reign with Christ. Ruling and reigning, having work to do in the new creation. When God restores and renews and makes all things new, we will have a vocation in the world and creation will rejoice as it's set free from its bondage to decay. Liberation is what's ahead for creation. Glorification is what's ahead for God's children. Resurrection is what's ahead for your bodies. 
And that is all very, very good news. Now you say, well, help me out though with right now. And let me just say two things that I think this helps us with in the now. Number one, this incredible hope that meets our longings and questions, number one, gives us endurance in the face of suffering. He says our present suffering does not compare to our future glory. And here he is confronting what I think is kind of an Americanized, kind of a bad version of Christianity. I mean, he's not confronting that because that didn't exist back then. But I'm going to confront it from this text, which basically commodifies Jesus and makes him a product that when you purchase Jesus, he makes your life better. And sometimes the circumstances in your life improve when you become a follower of Jesus. But sometimes the broken marriage remains broken. Sometimes the prodigal doesn't come home. Sometimes the verdict is still malignant. Sometimes when you become a follower of Jesus, the circumstances in your life actually get worse. And oftentimes, we who have bought into a, I got Jesus in my life and now things are supposed to be better and now I've got, now I've, I'm suffering. What's going on, God? We think it's, it's, it's God's fault. But Jesus from the beginning, Jesus from the beginning said, in this world, you will suffer tribulation. Peter said, don't be surprised about the fiery trials that come upon you. Paul told all the new converts at the churches that he was starting that it was through many tribulations that you must enter the kingdom of God. You will suffer. Merry Christmas. (laughs) But be of good cheer. For Christ has overcome the world. Resurrection, glorification, liberation is coming. And it is made sure by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has raised Jesus from the dead. God has entered into humanity in the incarnation. And that is hope for us that in the future, the promises are sure and secure and they remain true. So this hope gives us endurance in the face of suffering. But secondly, this hope gives meaning in the midst of our lives. What this hope really narrates for us is a story of the world from creation to what's wrong with the world to ultimately where the world is headed. And this narrative gives shape and meaning to our existence. It tells us that our lives matter. Your body will be raised, and so what you do in your body now matters. The stuff your eyes look at matter. The stuff your ears hear matters. The the words your vocal cords utter matters because your body has been redeemed by God. You belong to God. You have been bought with a price. And life in this world matters. The things you do matter because you have been given a call, a vocation by God in this world to cultivate and to care for creation. Do you teach that to your children? Do you model it for your children, for your grandchildren? This gives meaning to our life now. And it's all made sure 
Because God did not leave us in this broken world alone, but God entered into this world through Jesus. This morning we close our time together at the Lord's table. And in this practice, as we take physical, tangible elements, uh, a piece of of cracker, a piece of bread, that is gluten-free, by the way, and a little thimble of juice that is Baptist-approved. But as we take these physical, tangible elements, it is an affirmation that the creator of all things cherishes his physical world so much that he entered into the world and became flesh and blood among us. So that in the fleshly body of Jesus, through his shed blood, God himself would bear in himself the curse and all of the futility and all of the sin of humanity and break its power so that we who trust in Christ can be united with God and share in resurrection and future hope. So as we share together in the bread and the cup, it's an affirmation of the promises of God to us. And so eat this bread and drink this cup this morning in hope and let it be an affirmation that your bodies matter, that you matter, that this world matters because the creator has not forsaken us. He has come after us. He's not gonna cut and run, but he has come to redeem and restore that which is broken and cause the blessings of the gospel to flourish as far as the curse is found. Whatever has been touched by sin is redeemed by God's grace.